All right, we're ready, Trustee Fox. Okay, I'm calling this meeting to order at 5.33. Uh, I don't believe we have a quorum, uh, so we will uh, postpone the motion to approve the minutes of the prior meeting until we do have a quorum. Uh, is there any public comment? I don't have any co public comment yet. Um, uh, can I still take a roll call, please? Sure. For, for the record, um, Trustee Blue is not here. Trustee Esteen is not here. I'm getting a text from her that I'll update you in a minute. Trustee Fox. Here. And Trustee Friedman. Here. So we do not have a quorum. Okay. Um, seeing as how there is no public comment, then let's move on to the uh, to item B1 on the agenda, the report from the chief financial officer. All right. Aloha. <laughs> Aloha. Let's see, share my screen. There we go. All right, can everyone see that okay? Yes. Perfect. So this is the uh, March report. And um, you're looking at the volumes here. A couple things I'd like to point out. Um, we had a good month in regard to volumes and mix of services. So if you look at our acute days, we're off 1.5%, which is just slightly more than we are year to date. Our discharges though are only 4.8 off instead of the 10.3 year to date. So our length of stay decreased. And at the same time that our length of days decreased to 5.4, year to date 5.9. Oops, I hit my slide, okay. Uh, our CMI went up. And normally when your CMI goes up, you would expect to have more days. So um, this mix is, is very positive for Alameda Health System. Uh, our ED was still a little off uh, at, at 12.3% versus a year-to-date at 10.3. However, our surgeries, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, hit budget. We were actually four over. So year-to-date, we're running almost 10% off. And in this month, we actually beat budget. And, and it, it looked like the surge was in outpatient. And I'm wondering if you know what's, what's behind that. Um, I have an inquiry out. I don't know if uh, anyone else on the call can answer. Um, I know ortho was up, but uh, I don't know if anyone else has any other information. I'm still waiting a response. Kim, I, I don't have um, it. I, I don't have information on it and I'd love to know more about this. Um, I know we've made some switches in where we do our surgery. You know, we move and, and I don't know if um, pain procedures and some of the procedure areas are in this category of surgery, but we have moved things around a little to, in order to create more block time for people. So that may have something to do with it, but certainly we should know, we should, evaluate and know more about this. Okay, I, I'm, I know I'll get be getting a response back soon. So, um, but yeah, this is great. And this is, as I said, we have not come close since the beginning of the pandemic. And just to remind everybody, this year's budget was based on pre-COVID levels. So this month is a strong indication that we are recovering. Um, 
In addition to that, deliveries were strong. Uh, in the skilled nursing area, our uh, discharges went up, meaning we could get more patients through, so more good news. Our clinic visits were up 8.3%, also good news. And if you look at the physician RVUs, we actually exceeded budget. And we also did for the overall statistics of adjusted discharges and adjusted patient days. So oh, all in all, volume month, mix of service month. Here's the financial statements. Uh, we had another good month. Net income was 11.5 million, which is 11.2 better than budget. Year to date, we continue to be way ahead of budget, 61.3 million at a net income of 79.7. Our EBITDA obviously is also strong, exceeding budget by almost 11 million in the month of March and 58.8 million year to date. Next slide is our uh, revenue slide. And if you look at the uh, gross patient revenues, we exceeded budget by 3.8%. So that is reflective of those strong volumes and mix of services, um, positive in every area. Um, and then if you look at net revenue, we're also positive. We have a collection ratio of 19%, which is above the year-to-date of 189 uh, As most of you know, the year-to-date includes a lot of one-time cleanup kinds of items that are not recurring. In the current month, what drove this is um, we collected on some older accounts. So about 2.4 million of the current month net revenue is based on the fact that we took pickups on accounts more than 270 days old um, that we had fully reserved. So those accounts were basically written off and we were able to write them back on and take the revenue. You got it. That's, a, that's always a fun thing to be able to do. <laughs> yes. And if we look at the supplementals here, we had another strong month in uh, supplemental programs. We were favorable 7.6 million. And that is being driven by Physician Spa, 3.4 million, and uh, QIP. Um, what's interesting for Physician Spa, it's for the years 14 through 16, um, we've got earlier years that haven't been reconciled. It's like the, the state is going um, methodically back in time, not starting at the early years first. We have quite a bit of li liability, 30 million on our books for the older years. And these first years all proved to be positive for us. So my hope is that will continue as they settle those out. And what does SPA stand for? I'm sorry. Let's see. It's physicians. Special, not specialty. It's, um, it's state it's plan amendment. Okay. The A stands for amendment. What was the other part, Ann? State plan amendment. Oh, state plan. Thank you, Ms. Brigham. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, supplemental fundings we get to help support physicians because there weren't enough uh, physicians available for uh, Medi-Cal patients. And so we, they started giving this extra money uh, for physicians. 
And QIP is also more good news. Uh, QIP, uh, we adjust it upward because we are doing better with the metrics. So that is another you know, demonstration of the work happening internally. Um, Epic, I know, is helping, but um, actually having the, the dashboards and the ability to uh, manage to these metrics is, is clearly helping our reimbursement. Retail pharmacy continues to do very well. Um, yes, we are going to take a hit because of the 340B legislation, but in February, you're not seeing it because we had deposits from the previous, I'm sorry, in March, we had uh, deposits in February that hit our revenue in March. And this is the expense slide. There's really not a lot of change here. It's the same variances in purchase services and materials and supplies. This month, it's a, we're off a little more than we are year to date. We're off 7.7 .7 million, which is 8.2% versus year to date, we're, being, we're off 6.1%. It is in these, you know, other than labor, it's in the purchase services and material and supplies. The only thing that is new this month is we're, we started recording the costs of the testing that needs to be done of staff, particularly in the skilled nursing facilities. Um, we will submit a FEMA claim and hopefully get reimbursed for that. But at this point it is an expense and we, have, we don't have an offsetting accrual for FEMA as we are still working on getting our applications in. Any questions on this slide? Okay, I'll take quiet as moving on to labor. So labor, uh, it's the same story we've been seeing every month. We have a negative variance of 4.7 million or 6.8% year to date, we're off 4.8. Um, in this current month, we had uh, some differences from budget. We had expected higher patient volume. So we had expected our FTE to go up. It did not. So we were actually more efficient this month with those higher volumes, which is, you know, I, I'm can't putting my counting on this being what saves us going forward, getting the registry costs down, hiring our own employees and being more efficient. Um, also, go ahead. Uh, about the registry variance, any feel that you have or that our COO may have in terms of how much of that variance or what proportion of it is usage of, of more registry than budget versus higher cost than expected for registry people? Alan, I think, I think I'll be touching on that in my presentation. If not, um, let me know. Kim, maybe you have some yeah, facts. So I would call this a rate variance because our overall FTEs for the year are favorable 63 and our costs are, are way up. So it's, it's clearly a rate variance. We are paying a lot more for registry and a lot more overtime. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, in this month though, normally people take time off for spring break. So normally, historically, we would see a lot higher paid FTE in March, and that didn't happen either because you know people are still leery of traveling with COVID, 
I don't know the reason behind it, but we had budgeted based on our historical experience and that did not happen in the month of March. That's why the favorable variance is so big in March at 171. Here's the cost. Uh, Trustee Fox, you can really see how it's really jumped up. For nurses, it used to be cheaper for us to hire a registry and now that is not the case. And you can also see the, the increase in all the other areas. Um, here's the FTE chart. And if you look to the right there, you can see the gray bar goes up. And that's because we had budgeted higher volumes in March, which we did actually achieve, which is great. But look at our FTE, the blue line actually dropped, even though the red line went up. So we were more efficient. So we are able to um, care for more patients with the same level of staff. So a lot of times you get to a minimum staffing level and you can't get below it and flex down. So what we're seeing here is um, we're able to uh, take care of more patients or provide more services with a fewer number of staff, which is, um, which is what our next year's budget is actually uh, built in. This next slide is the uh, balance sheet. And just a couple comments here. Our days in AR came down, so that's great news. Um, our net day, days in AR came down also, just not as fast as the gross days. And the reason for that is our net revenue is based on a 90-day average revenue and that was higher than our gross. So we, our days didn't drop as much. Um, also worthy to note is our net negative position at 208 is lower than it's been since, uh, it just keeps coming down since 21. So that's great news for this organization. And our net negative balance at 23,985 is a little higher than last month, but still way below where we've been. And here's our patient collections. We still are running way ahead of uh, previous years or 15.3% ahead. Also worthy to note is we, we did get a payment on uh, John George, the 4.7 million. We would expect to get you know, around 5 million every month. So we're getting caught up in the billing. We've gotten many more invoices to the county and they're working on processing them. So uh, our cash is lagging behind, which is an indicator that we're really even doing much better than the 15.3% in collections. Because if I had the 5 million and all the uh, behavior health column, that would really put us way above where we've been in previous years. This next slide is the uh, do-tos, do-froms that represent the transactions with the county on our balance sheet. Um, there's uh, county receivables in general at the top there for HPAC and for grants. Um, and then the next item there is the capital designation receivable that has 21 million in it. That is a fund that we've been providing 7 million June of each fiscal year for the last three years. And the rules uh, of engagement on this are each year we're supposed to provide documentation 
um, for ethic related expenses and get that reimbursed to us. And we did invoice them last year. The balance was 14 million. We invoiced for the entire 14 and they approved the invoice, but they did not release the funds. So we're gonna submit another invoice again for the additional seven, bringing the invoiced amount to 21. And then we'll also be paying 7 million, which is our responsibility under the arrangement with the county in June. And I have that in the cash flow. And how many years does that go on paying 7 million? Um, I don't know if anyone can help me on the phone. I can look that up for you. Well, don't need to know now. I'm just wondering it's, when it stops. Yeah, it's quite a, it ever it's quite a few years. It's quite a few years. I, I think it's uh, uh, 2035 sounds oh. like. Is that, I, so that, is that supposed like to be for the life of the Epic uh, install? I believe it's 10 years. Uh, I'm looking it up now. It's either 2032. Uh, so one of those numbers sounds familiar, 2032 or 2035. Okay. And then the capital cost receivable um, represents the cost report um, money that we get because we put the county owned facilities in our cost report. And then we take the money that incremental money that we get as a result of including those capital costs in our cost report, we turn it over to the county and then we're supposed to be able to access those funds to invest and maintain county-owned buildings. So um, right now, if you look at the net of that, the 35.6 in receivable and the 30 million, sorry, every time I go to the bottom, it advances the slide deck, but, and you look at the payable at the bottom, the 35.670 minus the payable of 30 million, there's 5.7 million sitting in the county that we should be able to access for maintenance and investment in county-owned buildings today. So this next slide tells you each year how much is payable, how much has been paid, what's outstanding. And then, so just to, the first column there ties out to what you just saw, the 35.7 that we've paid 5.7 million over. We paid 2011, 12, and 13, those first three rows, because they final settled on March 31st to 21. That's what our arrangement says, that we don't have to pay it until it settles. Then um, the county was uncomfortable with that. And so my predecessor, Nancy, went ahead and made a good faith payment on 2016 of 4.5 four, four, nine. Um, and that's inconsistent with how our documents read, but everybody recognizes that we did do it. So again, 5.690 is what's available for us right now that we should be able to access. Um, we have a remaining payable of 30 million. We've, the county has been talking to me since I've been here about releasing the rest of this money, because even though these cost reports are not final settled, in most of the cases, we've actually received 
interim payments on these cost reports or settled partially some of these. So we've gotten the funding in and they feel like we should not be waiting until final settlement. And also by waiting for fi final settlement, we hurt ourselves because we can't access the money to maintain and invest in facilities. So we've been discussing a way to fix this. And the current discussion is that we would pay 90% over after two years, because by then we would have a tentative settlement done. And we didn't wanna make the payment in June because that's when our line of credit has to go down to the lowest level during the year. So we, want, we decided to make it that first quarter after the end of the second fiscal year, uh, which would be July through December. And we would then make whatever, 90% uh, of whatever we had on our books, um, we would send it over to them. And this, is, this amount's gonna get pretty big because of the Highland Hospital. It's gonna be nine to 10 million a year going forward from 217, 2017 forward. So um, this is the discussion. I'm not asking for approval from Finance Committee today. Uh, we are working on a amendment to the agreement but this would be how we would propose structuring it. Uh, and once we've got the amendment ready, we would uh, take it to the board of trustees for approval. And when do you expect that will be? Well, I, um, for me, I have a, a deadline because the auditors, when they come to audit in like the August or so timeframe, they have told us they're not gonna allow me to keep this receivable on the books unless we've got something from the county that agree that they can hang their hat on that they're gonna actually give us this funding because we have tried to confirm for the last couple of years, these balances and they won't confirm them. So you're looking at August, maybe September. Yes, but uh, as soon as we can, we can, we can uh, get this done, I think it would be, would be wise. Um, I'll show you why in just a minute here me uh, talk about the NNB and our in our cash flow and you'll see why so overall this picture hasn't changed it looks almost identical to last month but there's some significant um, difference in transactions which are on the next slide so I'm going to just go ahead and advance it here and I'm going to go to the table below the first item, first row is the waiver recoupment. We um, got word that FY13 uh, was ready to settle and we are going to make a payment of $24.4 million in April. And then, and that's for the dish portion of it. And then for the safety net care pool, they're gonna, the state will owe us 1.8 and we believe we'll get that money in June. So that's a significant um, change here. And it was actually a surprise to me because uh, when James Jackson and I spoke to the state at the end of last fiscal year and agreed to pay the FY12, we were told that there, we probably wouldn't be responsible for settling another one of these this year. And so I just got this demand payment and no notice really. 
uh, and uh, we called them up and they said, yes, you're right. We did agree that we would take these one at a time. Um, they said, you know, everything seemed to go well last time and CAPH has been working on this. We, you know, we really didn't, we didn't think we needed to be proactive with you all. Uh, but James and I decided it would be best to go ahead and make the payment since we are so low on our line of credit and we do owe this money. And, you know, obviously a portion of it is the safety net care pool, not, not that significant for FY13, but that's owed to other hospitals. We actually get some back in FY13. So that's one significant change that's in the cash flow. And then if you go down further to the very bottom, you'll see the capital cost to the county and then the capital designation funds. So if we pay out the 26 million one, I don't know if we can get it done by May, but I put it in here in May. So assuming we could do that amendment and we could make that payment in May, um, it would reflect as, as shown here, then we would invoice the county for the remaining 7 million to get the 21 million from the capital designation fund. And they just about offset. So it wouldn't have a negative impact on the organization in doing this with this timing. And then in August of 22, that would be um, the end of the third quarter or the third month in after two years for the next year, we would pay the 9 million. So that would be a recurring type of a payment in August of each year for the next year's cost report. So um, having said that, if you, it's because it mostly offsets, it really doesn't change our the picture at all, except for that the line, the, the space between the blue line are from operations and the red line payment of recoupments is getting smaller and smaller. So that's great news for the organization. Does anybody have any questions? Chair Fox, uh, I confirmed it is 10 years from 2019. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I had one question, uh, Kim, and that is the uh, reimbursement receivables increased this year by $185 million from last year, year end. And I'm wondering what that is. That's a, a balance sheet line item. Yeah, so that's all of these programs. In my letter, there's a, a spreadsheet that has all the different programs. There's probably, let's see, one, two, three, four, 16 different programs. And then there's, you know, varying years for each one. Um, I don't have in front of me um, last fiscal year compared to this year. I have last month to this month. Okay. So it has nothing to do with our days in AR. This is totally separate mm -hmm. from patient AR. Yeah, this has nothing to do with patient AR at all. Okay. Our days in AR have come, come down. They were about, they were like 99 and now we're down to 60, so. Yep. Okay. Any other questions for our CFO? Thank you, another great month. Keep these reports coming. It's yeah, it's great, been uh, quite great, a year. Just great to see all, all these favorable reports. results. 
I did want to give a quick budget update, if that's okay. Sure. Just real quick. So I just wanted to let everyone know that we finalized the departmental review of the budgets uh, with the entire leadership team. So everybody has reviewed for accuracy and made any edits up that they deemed appropriate. Um, we've completed the capital placeholders for 23 and forecasted out cash flows for three years. Um, our next step is to layer on top of the budget, the performance improvement best initiatives. So that is happening right now. And uh, we currently do have a positive margin. There's no big gap. I know for many years, there's been you know, 50 to $100 million gaps, but that is not the case this year. We're ready to uh, move forward with a, with a positive operating margin. And we uh, have about three weeks to do the full presentation and post it for you all so that uh, you can consider approval of the budget at our next finance committee meeting. Okay, we'll look forward to that. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Fratsky, your report is next on expense management. I think Blue has a question. Blue has a question. Okay. Trustee Blue. You're on mute. Uh, thank you. Thank you um, for that report. I wanted to know in the draft budgets that the departments have been uh, working on, was there any increase in uh, the budget for registered nurses? We actually reduced the budget for registry. We're wanting to cut it. We have a goal of 50% um, reduction in registry. I think in the budget, we did slightly less than that because we didn't want to uh, assume we could get it all, get that done right away. It might take time to recruit. I, I don't remember right off the top of my head what percent is actually built in the budget, but again, 50% is our target. Uh, and, the, and department managers did make some adjustments. I think they overall increased our budget by 12 million when they finished. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, Mr. Fratsky, we've got the next 30 minutes set aside for your report. Thank you, um, Trustee Fox. Let me share my screen with you. So um, thank you, Trustee Fox and board members. I, I wanna give you a, it's fairly brief. Um, you know, some of the questions that were asked during Kim's presentation around labor, registry, et cetera, I'll hit on here. Um, but it's really about how do we come out of a pandemic where we had a high amount of um, overtime pay, a high amount of registry pay, um, all which was needed to get us through the pandemic, but it is settling down now. And we need to start thinking about a goal, our goals around labor expense management and a plan to, to try to decrease our labor expense. So that's a little, some thoughts about this as we move into the next fiscal year. Our current state is really that not, if you take out the physician salary, um, our salary and registry is about $22 million over budget to date, and if I annualize that out, 
it could be 38 million over budget for the year. We're making money, our net income is good, but it's a significant amount of overage. That said, our paid FTEs is 63 less than budget, which is what Kim was describing earlier. That's 63 under budget for the year. Now, it really comes down to all of the areas in labor that, we, that are high priced. Those being, as you've heard already, registry, when there's a lot of overtime. Um, we gave a lot of bonus payout this year to have, for our staff to work extra shifts as we were short, et cetera. So all that um, um, accumulated high expense, but we were able to control our FTEs to be 63 under. The escalation in our pricing is really related to the registry. Um, our overtime was budgeted at 2.7%, and we find it today to be at 3.6%, which I think is pretty phenomenal um, based on, on what we've been going through um, with the shortages we've had. This just gives you some idea of, in this case, where our what our overtime rates are. And you can see by campus, um, professional services, which um, is um, in the, in the, in the non-nursing clinical areas is about 7.7%, all the way down, if you go all the way down to the darker blue line, that's Highland, 2.6%. So of all the um, freestanding entities or hospitals, if you will, that are listed here, Highland actually has the lowest amount of percent over time. 2.6% um, that we achieved in pay period 20 is actually what our goal will be for next year. The paid registry FTE trend, um, you can see that the FTE at, at, in this case, the dark blue line is Highland, is about 153 FTEs in pay period 20 that we use. And you can see it's starting to come down. But as we sit here today, we have 238 total registry staff across our system. And of those 238, 97 of them are nursing. And if you break that down, 50 of those 97 of nursing are at Highland and 34 at, are at Alameda. Now, Ro Lofton, our CNO, has been working with Veronica Shelton at Alameda and they've already reduced as of May 31st, we'll, we'll have 12 travelers exiting Alameda Hospital in lieu of bringing our own staff in. So our goal is by the end of the year, end of the calendar year, to make sure we hit that 50% reduction. Our sitter utilization is another area that um, we have an opportunity to decrease our, our expenses. If you, if you look at this, you can see um, the FTE trends around sitters. Um, and especially at Highland, about 40 FTEs worth of sitter use in one pay period is, is quite a bit. Now, you know, Highland in any one day has probably four to six 5150 um, patients sitting in the acute care setting, and they need an actual body one-to-one. -one. But we also have several other um, patients that we're sitting that um, are on one-to-ones. And we're moving toward a new technology called Telesitter by a company for, um, called Avisure 
And we expect um, to be able to, by way of using the technology where we have um, like a camera on a platform in a room to be able to monitor up to 12 patients at a time in a central location, kind of like you do with EKGs um, and be able to communicate to the nurses if there's any reason for them to um, be in the room with the patient. So our goals for 2023 are number one, we want a 50% reduction in registry, which, which if we do it, will equate to approximately $30 million. Now, that 30 million, of course, will be backfilled with our own staff, so it'll be less than 30 million, but it'll still be a significant um, reduction of a few million. We expect to get through the new technology and with the telesitter about a $1.3 million reduction. Um, and moving from a 3.6% over time, which we have today to 2.8, will be a $2.4 million reduction. So we really believe that these goals are achievable. Um, we believe we can do it. Um, the productivity that we've seen through the year is across our whole system is about 100%. So we're doing pretty well with productivity. I mean, we have some spots that we need to do better, but overall um, our productivity as an organization is really good. So, um, but, but the labor, you know, we'll continue to work on. Um, here are some of the tactics we're going to be using in each one of these categories. So with, in, in fact, with overtime now, we're going to create um, a centralized way to manage our nursing schedules through the centralized um, staffing office. In fact, um, Dana Littlepage, our new vice president for nursing is overseeing all of the administrative functions of nursing. And we really are pleased she's here to help us with things um, administratively in nursing. Um, we'll begin staffing office meetings with the managers, um, the staff, the staffing, the nursing staffing really has to be a collaborative effort between a nursing staffing office that's centralized and the nurse managers on each unit. Um, we're going to be posting positions continually. We've had a history here of batching, if you will, when, when nurses leave. Um, there's a history of not posting them right away, but holding postings and batching them in you know, five to 10 at a time and posting them all at once, maybe three months or four, maybe one month after the, after the nurse leaves. So as soon as we know there's going to be an open position, we need to get them posted and be more aggressive with our filling up positions. We're creating common expectations around incidental overtime. Incidental overtime is when um, a staff person may come in early or may stay late at the end of shifts with no approval usually from their manager. We need to tighten that up. So we try to decrease our incremental overtime. We have an opportunity, I think, to rebalance some nursing schedules. Some of our nursing schedules haven't been rebalanced for years. Um, and we feel there's an opportunity to be more efficient if we can do that in, in some areas. Um, managing sick calls. We had a high degree of sick calls this year, you, as you would guess with the pandemic, but um, you know, we do have a sick leave policy and, and we need to manage that. So I, I won't go through all of the overtime tactics, but this gives you a flavor of some of the tactics that our staff and our leaders will be working on this year. In terms of sitter, um, 
the telus the telesitter model, um, which I've spoken about, um, is definitely going to be a game changer for us. Um, we're going to develop a centralized cost center for. Um, Alan, did you have a question? Yeah, um, I I read uh, CFO's recent memo about the new timekeeping system, and I'm wondering how if that will be a positive, favorable impact on all of these things. Yes, I think the new the new Kronos timekeeping system will give us better data, um, better data around overtime, better data around productivity. If we want, we can put our nursing schedules into it. So there's this connection between hours worked and hours scheduled. Um, so it does give us some advantages, Alan, to, to monitor our labor more closely. Okay. Trustee Blue? Yes, I wanted to know, what is rebalancing of nursing schedules? What is that? Um, you know, it, it's when, you know, over time and over years, frankly, um, usually in nursing units, you start with a standard schedule. Um, let's just say you average 24 patients and you've got a staff to 24. You'll develop a schedule that allows you to be able to manage 24 patients efficiently given the ratios. Over time and over years though, you know, nurses will drop two FTEs or wanna increase um, more FTEs. And over time you start deviating from the original schedule and the intent to be able to care for efficiently say 24 patients. And there becomes gaps in the schedule where you may have too many nurses on one day and not enough on another day. Mm -hmm. So it really is a way to smooth the schedule out to make sure it's just really efficient. And is it specific uh, shifts where that's a problem or it's all across? It, it can be specific shifts or it can be all across. It, it just depends. And, and like I said, not all of them may need it. Some of them may though because then you have to start filling in gaps because you have too many on one day and fewer on another, you start using overtime or you start using you know, travelers and you start developing these habits because your schedule is frankly out of whack. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then uh, just one more question, Mark, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, on the sitter model thing, yeah. so it's almost gonna be like a telemetry, right? situation yeah. for sitters. Yeah. Um, are patients restrained? Do they have no. Okay. No. No. And for the patients that are kind of agitated mm -hmm. and disoriented, will you still put a sitter in the room or is it just going to be by, by uh, uh, whatever that yeah, you know, we'll have our nurses assess um, the degree of, I guess, the level of one-to-one -one they need, Rusty mm -hmm. Blue. If a, if, a, if a patient's really agitated and constantly getting out of bed, um, they're going to require a one-to-one -one person in the room. Um, many of our patients are not like that. Many are more, I guess I would say elderly, um, and they get more confused when evening time comes and uh -huh. um, they may get up spontaneously or impulsively to want to go to the bathroom. We've got a lot of opportunities with those types of one-to-ones. 
using okay. the telesitter. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I'm just concerned about making sure that there's no injuries. Yeah. Right. You know, the interesting thing, um, the organizations, including places like Stanford, they've seen a reduction in their injuries, their falls with the telesitter. And uh -huh. I think it's because to your point, Trustee Blue, they keep the one-to-ones on the people that they're really needed to have people. But there's, uh -huh. always, there's also all of these patients that are somewhat at risk, but we don't put a sitter on them that we could use this technology for. And those are the ones where we really can help reduce the falls. You know, Mark, I guess the issue is whether we can react fast enough on those patients. Yes, That's the answer is- what Trustee yeah. Blue is shaking her head about because yeah. you have to go down a long corridor to get to the patient. Um, are you gonna get there in time or are you gonna be yeah. able no. to get there? Yeah, yeah. The, the organizations who have this, they, they put these correctly on the right types of patients. They can answer the, the call quickly. The nurses all have phones and they'll be in direct communication with the, the, the I wanna call it the telemetry center, Alan, but the sitter center. So the intent is to be able to respond in a really quick fashion. And are you gonna pilot it in certain areas or is it gonna be try to implement system-wide? We're going to implement system-wide. Now, Roll Loft and our CNO is on, I believe. I don't know, um, Trustee Blue, what their rollout plan is, whether they're starting mm -hmm. small, but I know the intent is to go system-wide. And Ro, if you're on, maybe you can address that rollout plan. Yeah, no, thank you, Mark. Um, so Trustee Blue, we're still working through that. Um, and one of the ideas is to have it uh, be a pilot program at one of the facilities first, most likely Highland. Um, we're starting out with a limited number of cameras um, just so that we can get our hands around this um, first. And then as the program grows and we learn more, then we'll be able to expand um, to cover more patients or to maybe even use it for teaching. Um, but we will start small enough that we can learn from it and ensure that we're keeping our patients safe. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trustee Blue, you have another question or is your hand? Okay. I'm good. All right. Yeah. I think um, you can see, you can see the other sitter utilization tactics, but I can tell you, we, we also, I think need to do a better job of asking family members if they would be willing to stay with their loved ones, if it, if it is at all possible. Um, in terms of registry, you know, as I mentioned, we're going to be more aggressive with our open vacancies, get things posted and managed quicker. And I know in Robin Hodge, who's leading our, you know, our talent management and recruitment area, our nursing leaders are working and others are working closely with her. And they're doing quite a bit to try to make our onboarding process more efficient. Um, so we're hopeful in that area. Um, we also have not had um, really good oversight in the past over registry. Um, registry was um, kind of a decentralized thing, I would say, when somebody needed one, they would, they would post it um, or, or, or order, it, order a registry when, in fact, um, really questions weren't asked if it was really needed, et cetera. So 
we've, we've decided to push all of the need for at least nursing travelers into our centralized nursing office and have approval for all registry go up through our nursing VPs. So um, before a registry person can come in the door, it's scrutinized, questions are asked, and we know that there's a position posted that a registry person can go into. Okay, So we're changing up that process to have more accountability and scrutiny. So these are just some of the tactics you can see that we're going to be working on through the year. Um, and uh, I, I, like I said, I'm confident we can do this and I'm looking forward to um, hitting what we need to hit on this new fiscal year. So I believe that is my last slide, Trustee Fox, and I'll give you back a little time if, unless there are more questions. Um, I guess the only question I have is that reducing red, uh, registry by 50% is an ambitious goal. Um, and I, is that 50% total year over year, or are you think uh, is your goal to get by the end of next year to be at 50% of this year's run rate? So the 50% is this year. Um, I think we do need to have discussion about where, where do best practice hospitals settle in? Because there isn't a hospital that doesn't use some amount of registry or contract labor. The question is, what is best in industry? And that's where, if we think about two to three years from now, where I'd like us to get to, whatever that is. I can tell you my, my, my experience with nursing registry is that it's much less than the 50% we're working on now. I can see that, Alan, coming down maybe another 25%, unless it's in the flu season, where, you know, like we usually had to staff up. But um, this is a beginning for us, and we'll continue to grind it down. Okay, we'll, we'll see. Is that what's, what you've got planned for the budget, that our registry usage for next fiscal year will be half of what it's been this uh, year? No, we haven't gone. No, the, the new budget. But the 22-23 budget has the 50% reduction. 50%, okay. Yeah. And as Kim said, it might be prorated a little, but that's the intent. Okay, well, that's ambitious. So we'll, hopefully we'll be able to achieve that. Ms. Mr. Chair, this is Duquette. Uh, May I ask a question of Mr. Pratsky? Go yes, ahead. Yes, please, Trustee Duquette. Uh, 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 this is back on the, on the, on the sitter issue. And apologies if there's a lot of granularity here. How, how large is our sitter core, and um, what would be the anticipated? Uh, 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 would these be job transitions to other within the organization as we're sort of forecasting the impact on yeah. our own staff? Hey, Ro, can you respond to that question? I it's, it's an and operation. I apologize for the granularity, but um, that's okay. okay. It's okay. So um, what we're looking to do is right now we, we do have a budget on each unit for sitter utilization, um, especially at Highland because of the number of 5150, 5250 patients that we have. And um, we go above and beyond that budgeted amount. So there's a run rate where we're using our SAN employees to um, actually sit with these patients. And so if we're running at least like six 5150s, um, a day in Highland, 
and a total of maybe 10 or 12 sitter patients total, let's just say 10. Um, so we'll be able to put sitters on four of those. So it's not that we will be um, do you know, a reduction in force, but we, we're kind of reallocating it. So for the telesitter um, responsibilities, we need 4.2 FTEs. So the, the people that were in that run rate that was not budgeted for, that was SAN use, those will open up as actual positions for someone to, to obtain a full-time job there. Wonderful. Yeah. And so, um, and then we'll still use sitters for our 51, 50, 52, 50s. Ms. Alton, thank you. I knew you'd know the detail. And, and you hit to the, the nail on the head of the question was potential for force reduction. So yeah. finding, making sure we have a place for our people who are in, our permanent people who are in these jobs. So thank mm -hmm. you. You're welcome. Okay, any other questions for uh, Mr. Fratsky? All right, in that case, since we now have a quorum, I'd like to go back and uh, have a motion to approve the minutes of the meeting of April 6th. Trustee Friedman. So moved. Okay. I second. Okay. Uh, can we have a roll call, please? Uh, moved by Friedman, seconded by Trustee Blue. Um, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Dean is not here, sorry. Trustee Fox. Aye. And Trustee Friedman. Aye. The motion passes, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, going uh, on to the C section of the agenda, we're going to have Sherry Johnson's uh, revenue cycle performance report. Uh, we've got 20 minutes designated for your report. You're on. Hey, I, I wanted just to take a minute to introduce Sherry Johnson. She has taken over as our Vice President of Revenue Cycle for Alameda Health System, so it's for the system. Um, uh, Sherry has a wealth of experience. Uh, she, I already can see how well the team is all gelling, so I'm really excited to have her present today. Um, but uh, please uh, meet Sherry Johnson, and I'll turn it over to you, Sherry. Right. Evening, Welcome, everyone. Sherry. Good evening. We're very glad to have you. I am glad to be here. So before we get started, can everybody see my screen? I want to make sure. Yes. Thank you. I want to talk about really what's going on in our revenue cycle um, department, walk through our revenue cycle journey with Epic, cover what we what are we doing in our current state and all the wonderful accomplishments that's happened, and then talk through what, what is our current state look like for revenue cycle. So it looks like I'm having a computer glitch where it's not moving on to the next screen. One moment, please. Sure, if you want to email it to me, I can pull it up or I can go find it in my file here, but then I can do the slides for you. Okay, let me see if it's working now. Well, it's not, so let me send it over. Sherry, there was another slide up, if that's helpful. Yeah, that's just interesting. 
It's not advancing? No. Sometimes my computer just freezes. Bear with me. I apologize for that. Now I'm completely stuck. Ma Madam Clerk, if we could take us to page 71 of the packet, that would open up Sherry's or, or council. Yeah, that, that would be great. I don't have a uh, board advantage up to help her. There we go. Yep, and I'm still stuck. I apologize. This Sherry, is can you see the, can you see, uh, hold on, we, you, the slide, your, your opening slide was just up. Yeah. Is, uh, Rana, are you projecting? Rana, can you put us back to page 71? I have the slide if you guys want me to project. Thank you. And then Sherry can just go old school and call slide. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> That's why he's the chair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there. Thank you. Can you see that, Sherry? I can. Thank you. From the beginning. beginning. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. No, uh, sorry. Uh, slideshow. Huh. Should go just right from the beginning there. If you just click the far uh, left. The far left from beginning. That yeah, should initiate the slideshow. Somehow it went to my other screen, so let me share my other screen. Sorry about that. Okay. And if we can... So let's, if you can take us to slide one, that'd be great. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's slide four of the set. I don't know why this isn't working. I keep clicking on this slide. Maybe just click on slide two and do it the old, yeah, work. Okay. click on two. There, we'll just do it that way. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you for your patience. Um, so I want to draw your attention to our journey from uh, Epic. When you, as you know, when you go through an EHR conversion revenue cycles, because we're so far downstream, there's a lot of opportunities that can occur for us. And in, in, um, I really didn't want to spend time on the top grid, but what Epic does is they produce a stabilization grid for us. And it lets us know how we're comparing to our, our partners that have... Um, launched Epic um, for their go live. So if you go to the uh, bottom left, you can see that our Epic AR days, as we went live with Epic, we were considered a bottom performer and we were at 99.3 days in um, AR for um, our Epic peers at go live. So um, certainly a, a nervous time for the organization or for revenue cycle to be a, a considered a bottom performer and really landing in that space. The other um, metric that's really critical at our Epic Go Live is um, if we move to the second um, graph, it's our um, candidate for billing. The candidate for billing is when charges are completed through at the clinical in the clinical space, and maybe they're not able to drop into a claim out into to the payers. And what happens is um, Epic, it's, it's a really beautiful, wonderful system that has tons of edits. And it's looking for us to hold claims and clean them or hold the bill and clean them before it even drops. So we were, um, we had some significant issues and again was 
well past being a bottom performer for Epic, meaning that we couldn't get bills out the door um, for, um, for to improve our candidate for billing. So we were roughly around 30 days in backlog to get our, our, our claims out the door or actually pass an edit to get them out the door. And then over to the right, we had our open denial days. And again, we were considered a bottom performer for um, epics, our peers in epic, regarding how many, uh, how many days went by before we actually touched our denial and started working it. So really, we had a lot of missing billing requirements, which, would did, which allowed us not to get our um, days, our candidate for billing out. Um, we also had when you think about billing requirements, that actually improve, increases your AR days and billing requirements are also related to your denials. We had a lot of um, denials that we didn't know how to process and, and what they were related to. So if you don't have a lot of edits, you don't have a lot of knowledge going on with what's happening in Epic, then you can't really move, I'm gonna call it inventory and get the, uh, the revenue in the door. We also had um, lack of structure in our, in our reconciliation processes. And then we missed um, part of the scope of making sure vendors, we have vendors that help secure our accounts during um, pre-registration and financial counseling along with bad debt. So we didn't have a lot of good data sharing um, with our key vendors for the health system. Next slide, please. So I'm going to take you over to our, our key performance indicators that we uh, that I showed you on the previous page, and and the wonderful work that has gone on in revenue cycle. But more, let me say that we still have work to do. But it's it's great to see these metrics. But at our epic launch, our AR days um, were at 99.3, and as of last month and for the month of March, we we dropped it down to 62. And I'm really pleased to let you know that in April we're down to 61 61.2 days. So we are steadily making progress. Reducing the AR is a very difficult um, process because we are the we receive all of the information. So our job in revenue cycle is to start to push the defects or the opportunities more upstream and get them fixed. So that takes a lot of coordination and work effort to improve your days in AR. It's not just a magic number of, oh, we gotta work harder and faster. We have to work, uh, work smarter. Our candidate for billing at launch was at, again, at, you saw at 19.1 days, and now we're down to 6.9 days. And sometimes that changes because we put more edits in or sometimes a new service line goes live. We, we still want to drive that candidate for billing down. But again, it's teaching um, uh, our our partners that are entering the charges or um, getting more information out to those areas about um, how we can look for cleaner um, um, revenue coming through. And then our open denial days, that's not something that we measure at Go Live, but as you can see in fiscal year 20, we we're at three and then last year at 5.5 days and we're down to 2.9 days. So that means that we're working our denials faster. Um, also, it means that we're also working on a denial avoidance versus really how do we work and process denials from the payer? How do we avoid the denial going out the door to the payer? Some additional metrics that we started measuring was our denial rate. Um, if, so in fiscal year 20, uh, we were at 30.42% for our denial rate. We have had slight improvement, but we're at, and we're at 27.5 um, as of last month. So again, this is a hard metric to change, but it's some, something that's in our wheelhouse that we can definitely make an impact on. 
our DNFB days are, are bills that don't are not out the door. So it's denied, but they're not final build. And we measure that to say, you know, where are the problems and how do we remove that and reduce these days? And that's another opportunity that we have to improve our cash. So in fiscal year 20, um, we were at 15.2 days and now we're down to 10. Certainly we have about two more days to shave off in this area. We wanna to get to best practice with our peers in Epic, which is about eight days. But we, And so we are working really hard to um, make that improvement. We are measuring our daily revenue, and that, as you can see, continues to improve as we improve with service lines, we, you know, our charge master, and making sure we're having um, revenue integrity with charge capture. So we were at 7 million, and um, we ended March at 9.3 million. So you can see that steadily improvement in capturing revenue and, and minimizing revenue leakage. And the other thing that we're monitoring is our average monthly payments. So in June, our average fiscal year 20, we we're around 41.3 million for our monthly payments average. And right now we're averaging around 48.3 million per month. And again, the way we start to work on performance improvement and revenue cycle is if you go to the left, I've got some five big points that we're working on. It's analytics and trending. So we can work one account after another account after another account, or we can start to leverage data and analyze trending to really move, I'm going to say, the inventory or the accounts receivable. We also started doing task force. So in, 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 in again, using analytics, bring a task force together. So we have a task force working weekly on denials and a task force working on our DNFBs. And then we always have charge capture improvement initiatives going on. How well, how often are meeting with our departments to talk through with them any charge capture challenges or any, set of, any sort of router issues within our EPIC system. And then my favorite thing in the world is lean techniques. So in, and so as we move through removing waste, and using six, six Sigma lean to drive process improvement and then setting targets for 2023. Any questions on our current state and our key performance indicators? Uh, yeah. Chair Bouquet. Uh, uh, thank, nice to meet you, Ms. Johnson. Thank you for that report. So, so uh, th this slide is quite impressive in the Delta we have between our launch you know, on September 28, 2019 and, and now. With exception of the denial rate, you touched on that. This is the one that has uh, that has had that ha the delta is the least. Can you go into some of kind of uh, uh, countermeasures to to address that? And then as as a beware of of uh, people with minimal knowledge, which is me being dangerous. <laughs> I know some organizations send um, send everything downstream and then wait for the denials and then fix the denials on that side. Some people try to spend a lot of time on the front end work, making a clean, uh, you know, and that's, I know, I know both are labor intensive. Can you tell me about the philosophy of our organization? Are we trying to send out clean stuff? Are we going to fix it on the back end? And why is our denial rate seems, again, we've had a move, but how come this one has moved the least of all these? That's, thank you for all those questions. And I'm going to try to answer them all. And I think this is, again, for me, when have, as I've gone into organizations, is the hardest thing to change. And it's because you're, I think there's, what we have to consider or really focus in on is the right education for everybody to know. So revenue cycle, we can work on the denial, but our job is to educate and, and, 
and I'm going to say move the denial pro process or issue more upstream. So example, when we see denials coming for lack of authorization, how well do we um, partner with our physician groups or the referring physician to get that authorization? Um, it's also being knowledgeable about payer behaviors. So a long time ago, you could provide um, a service in the OR, and it could be a specific procedure. And if the physician, and you would get the authorization and the payer would pay, and if the physician changed the procedure, well, they would still pay because you had that patient there. Well, they found a way to deny that. They, they say that you have to have this exact procedure, it's called the HICPIC and the CPT authorized. And if you change that, we can deny you. So we have to be very intuitive, you know, we have to know what the payer is doing and we have to figure out how to combat that. Oh, I also think, so part, that's one way we avoid it. The other thing that's happening in, in the industry is payers are deliberately asking for medical records. So they'll deny claims and they'll say, we need medical records. And, and what I think is our biggest opportunity is, is to work it with our contracting to say to the payers, you know what, you can't ask for medical records if we're doing concurrent review and we're giving you the medical records and giving all this information, getting the authorization, why do you need medical records? So there's all of these different tactics that we need to push back with and educate and put more edits in place to drive that. We have a lot of opportunity in our eligibility. So when a patient comes in to our door, you know, into our facility, how well are we checking their insurance and making sure that they're eligible for that service. So we have pockets that we know through data trending already where our opportunity is. And now it's really forming the groups and the task force to go out there and really work with the departments, provide education or the edits um, to really move into more of a denial avoidance. Once we change that shift from us just working it to that cultural shift of here, help me, then we'll be more successful. Can you talk, thank you for that. That's, that's a very thoughtful answer. Can you talk about the predictability of all these knowledge sets given that greater than three quarters of our payers are government-based and, 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 and the predictability about those things? Does this knowledge set change a lot? I mean, we've always been the county and taking care of Medi-Medi, Medicare, HPAC. There's a sort of a predictability about that. So that I, I guess... That's, that's what sort of confuses me. Does, is, has the landscape changed that much? Well, I think that's, that's an interesting question and comment. And, and I'm gonna answer that two ways. We do have a lot of, of medical denials that contribute to this number. And um, so then I go to, well, how's our, how well is our training and, and the systems upstream? The, the rules are very basic um, and have not changed a lot for med, our many, many patients. Yeah. Um, but I will say that our commercial plans, um, and Kim can probably provide a lot more background or information around this, even though they may be smaller, they contribute to a lot of our dollars in our denials, and we have the most work in that space. So um, Anthem Blue Cross has been a challenge for many organizations. They deny, 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 deny. So even though it's a smaller payer, our workload with some of our commercial payers is even greater causing that denial rate. So it's really part of um, a JCO, which is you know, something that we plan on standing up to really address with our, our payers and 
providing a scorecard to them to say, here's how you're performing. So we need to give information back to our payers around their behaviors as well. So again, more education from our team as well on how to manage the you know the basic Medicare payers and the, the Medi-Cal payers, um, again, and then pushing back to the commercial plans. That's I, awesome. Thank you for fielding comment. that question. <laughs> yeah, I was going to add a comment. Um, so right now with Blue Shield and Blue Cross, we have um, you know pending litigation um, for both for both those payers, and it and it's because of the underpayments, mostly for trauma, and uh, it's a substantial amount of money. And we uh, have now contracted with Blue Shield and we'll be giving you a contract strategy update in the next few months. But we've got Blue Shield done and we're right close on Blue Cross. I'm keeping my fingers crossed here, knocking on wood, doing everything I need to do here. Um, but if we can get those two contracts, we're thinking we could settle all those lawsuits and not have to go to trial. So um, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot a lot going on in the commercial world. And because we get paid so well, particularly, you know, on the trauma side of things, um, we need to make sure that even as a contracted provider that we've got our system set up so we are able to get paid what we've negotiated. So it's, it may only be, you know, 7% of our payer mix, but it's a very important 7% because it's, you know, we get paid so much more, you know, money than we do from Medi-Cal or state. And question, do we have the, the data, I guess, through Epic so that we can group our denials within payer by cause? And so we can, we can tell Blue Cross you're denying 15% of the claims for this and all the other payers, their rates are, they're denying 3%. Thank you for that question. And the answer to that is yes. So Epic allows us to drill down to the, the minutia of every single denial and trend it. So we can look at it by payer, we can look at it by procedure, we can look it out as inpatient to outpatient, we can look at it to denial reason code that we get it back from the payer. So there's, there's many different um, slices that we can look at the data, but that's really critical to your point that we take that time to do that and drive that process improvement back to the payer or, or again back upstream. But yes, we do have all that data available. Good, thank you. Let's, let's move on from denials and hit some of your other topics. Okay, this, so this is my favorite slide because it talks about our vision for revenue cycle. And I think the core off to the left is really making sure that in revenue cycle, whatever we're doing, we improve the patient's experience because we know that the patient's first experience is through patient access or registration. Our goal is also to improve our financial performance for the health system. And then making sure that everything that we do is value add and less waste to make sure that we're reducing our cost to collect. Uh, we, we have, um, we're working strongly on our employee engagement and then we're reducing lead times and making sure that we can get faster turnaround times with our, um, our payments. So here's how we're, we're creating this building blocks um, off to the right for our process improvement. And the things that we're focusing on in order to get the cash and you know, reduce our denials, it's um, if we look off, up here, off, um, we're gonna start up on top with the patient estimates and point of service collections. If we, our goal is to provide patients their estimate before they arrive for their service and provide an opportunity for them to pay in you know, prior to the service being rendered. 
Off to the um, moving down to the gray box, um, we're also building when, as Kim talked earlier about contract with contracted with the commercial payers, we have an opportunity to build those rates into Epic. And what happens when we build those rates into Epic, we can actually look at and monitor how the payers paying us if they're overpaying us or underpaying us. So that's another big step. The next step is adding a clinical appeals unit. So one way we combat denials is we embed a nurse an LPN or an RN into the business office, and they help us work on our appeals all the way from the first to a second level appeal before we move it off to arbitration. So that's a new um, clinical appeals unit that will be standing up. The next one is um, making sure that we're complying with the AB 72 regulation and the No Surprises Act that went into effect in January 1st. The No Surprises Act um, is really protects the patient from not getting a surprise bill from an emergency service when they're an out of when a hospital is considered out of network. So we're working um, fast and furious to get that project up and running. We're also moving to a centralized pre-registration insurance verification unit. So we believe that if we can centralize everything, our patient's experience will be better because we'll be able to pre-register that patient, call them in advance, let them know, get them all ready for their service, let them know their liability. And when they come in, we can just say, welcome. And why don't you move to your, you know, let me get you to surgical services. So minimize that patient's wait time, reduce the registration process, do it over the phone and leverage Epic as much as we can on um, self-service registration. Uh, the, we got three more. One is making sure that we have an ongoing quality and training program. We do not have a full high functioning um, quality training program for throughout revenue cycle. So we have pockets of training, but we need to say, how do we train front end? How do we train the back end? It's, it's, it's just something that we have an opportunity for. The, almost the last project that we're working on here is the, our compliance with our ABNs. Medicare requires us to notify a, be, a, a beneficiary that their service may not be covered through an ABN process. And that is something that we're um, implementing with, um, within our EPIC system. And then lastly, it's making sure that as we talked earlier, that we're able to meet with our payers in a joint operating committee meeting and give them scorecards on their level of performance. So any questions on where we're going for revenue cycle? Just one comment, the JOCs would include like Alliance and Blue Cross Managed Medi-Cal, which is a huge payer mix for us. Um, so just wanted to add that. Thank you, Kim. So next slide, please. I'm not gonna go through this one, but the, the purpose of me showing you this is because I just gave you an, a whole plan you know, how we're gonna, what, what we need to do, but now it's like, how do we put this in a process and what's our timeline? So I don't wanna um, really go through every um, timeline that we have on this grid, but it's allowing you to see that we've actually put this to paper with our, in partnership with our Huron and our best initiatives to say, this is what we think we can do in, in a timeline. Any questions on putting it to paper? Okay. Last slide is just really, um, I know last meeting, uh, we promised to come back to you for the next meeting, excuse me, with an HIM update. There was a question last meeting around duplicate medical records. And our goal is to bring Swarin, our, our HIM director back um, to the meeting to provide an update. 
The other thing um, we're working on is the charge master pricing strategy. So our goal is to bring that back in August or, or somewhere in there. And then um, making sure that I capture any other requests that you may have for revenue cycle in the future updates. And then any questions? Well, my question for you is how long have you been with um, AHS? Well, two and a half months. Okay. Well, you, you certainly have a, an excellent grasp of this. I have a feeling that you've worked on revenue cycle management and improvement uh, before. Yes. Around 20 years, not, not to shortchange that, but definitely have some experience in that space. Well, thank, thank you for distilling an incredibly complex function into a half a dozen or so slides that makes it easy to see yeah. what we're doing and, and what we're up against. And I, uh, hats off to the department, both before and after your arrival for, for doing a terrific job of, of coming up on Epic and, uh, and becoming a high achiever on Epic after you know, kind of being at the back of the class at the beginning. Appreciate, I will share that with the team. Thank you, sir. And thanks for your report. Any other questions? I'll just reiterate, Chair, uh, welcome Ms. Johnson. I apologize that we're meeting you for the first time two and a half months. Great report. That strategy slide, that was my favorite slide too. That's pretty bold stuff. And I think our patients and the system deserves it. So thank you very much. Thank you, sir. And we want you to stick around a while. Yeah. <laughs> I promised Kim I would. <laughs> it's a deal. You stick around, we'll have you back at least every year for an encore. Thank you. More often than that. Okay, we're gonna move on to item C2 on the agenda, which is the uh, article that uh, was in the agenda package uh, about uh, contract nursing agencies making big money through travelers. Uh, and I'm not going to summarize the whole article, but it seems like over the course of the pandemic, we've been in a vicious cycle uh, as hospitals have, are unable to fill their nursing needs. Uh, they go to uh, registries and as registries aren't able to fill those needs, hospitals go to travelers. And as they go to travel, uh, the more the demand for travelers, the more the travel agencies are able to increase their prices and they increase what they're paying their nurses and that then is attracting uh, employed nurses away from hospitals into the ranks of travelers, which just makes the uh, compounds the problem. Um, I was gonna ask the question of, uh, uh, of, our, of our people, Mark uh, and Roe, are our agency <clears throat> nurses primarily from local staffing agencies or are they travelers? Hi. Um, so they're travelers and they come from a variety of places. Um, we don't do day registry, you know, where someone just comes in for one day. They're all um, 13 week assignments. So they travel in. Okay. <clears throat> so our reduction in registry uh, for next year's budget is really a reduction in travelers. Yes. And, and have we lost a significant number of our own registered nurses to travel, traveling nurse agencies? So nationwide, people have seen that um, 
full-time nurses have given up their full-time positions to take what they call gig work. And that's these travel assignments. Um, however, it's shifting again because the rates aren't as high as they were when we were in the midst of the pandemic. Um, and what we're experiencing at um, Alameda now, we were just talking about it a little bit today, is that we're seeing um, nurses not wanting to take full-time work. They want per diem work or they want something along the lines of a 0.6, which is about two days a week versus taking full assignments. So we're still challenged with that. And are they doing that, Rose, so that they can go out and work for agencies the other two or three days? I think they're doing it for the flexibility if that's what they want to do. If they want to work a local assignment um, in the area or if they want to pick up at another hospital, but it also just provides them the flexibility um, if their children are sick or if they need to stay home to tend to family, then you can do that with a reduced schedule. You know, Ellen, I'm not seeing or hearing of, <clears throat> of a lot um, wanting to become travelers with the national organization. Um, typically, if our nurses work multiple areas, it's, it's within the Bay Area. <clears throat> okay. Great. Uh, I'd, I'd like to hear any comments that other members of the committee or, or staff or folks who have read this article might have on this issue. I, th I thought it was a good um, restatement of what we've been hearing, frankly, ever since the pandemic started. And I, I thought it uh, did a really good job of and analyzing some of the consequences in some depth a little more than we had before. So I found it very uh, useful reading and thank you for including it in our packet. Thank you, uh, Trustee Friedman. Any other comments? Uh, Mr. Chair, I'm obviously pleased that articles are now uh, trying to uh, brew through all of our committees and I uh, appreciate uh, giving us all the opportunity for learning. I, I thought it was a very provocative article and, and to inform us, you know, uh, they, they discussed one healthcare service, their profits were 434 million in Q4. That's up 109% from the year prior. One had an 1100% increase in, 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 in their services. So it's, it's, it's what an intriguing discussion. Where does this sit between a free market supply and demand phenomenon versus Dirty word here, but what versus the concept of price gouging? You know what what happens in 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 a situation of stress and uh, an emergency? You know, after Katrina, uh, a bottle of water might have cost a hundred bucks. You know, um, so these are these are really interesting dialogues and questions, and I, I appreciate that uh, you brought this up for discussion because we know that labor. You know, that's roughly seventy. That's roughly three quarters of the house. Is our is our labor expense, and uh, you know we've heard we've heard our our executives talk about how much it costs to do this, and I guess we've sort of we're we're, we're stuck riding the wave right now. So again, I'll, I I appreciate the article very much. Well, I think it's really amazing how insidious the travel agency nursing industry has become. Yeah, you know, my memory from twenty years ago or so is that you mainly encountered travel traveling nurses during a strike yeah and and you know if your hospital was facing a possible strike then uh the travel nurse agencies would be knocking on your door and offering you a very very expensive um solution <laughs> solution to what 
to your problem. And in some cases, uh, I remember an instance where the hospital that I worked for paid several hundred thousand dollars uh, for a commitment of, of several hundred travel nurses and then settled the contract at the 11th hour and that money was lost. Uh, and that was a community hospital, uh, not a for-profit. So uh, it's an insidious industry and it seems like whenever some there is a, a real blip in demand, like during the pandemic, uh, they, they just become even more, uh, uh, even more entrenched in our staffing model. And Miss, uh, sorry, other hands are up, I'll, I'll step back. Okay, I'm looking for a hand, but I don't, okay, uh, yeah. Trustee Friedman. Yeah, thank you. Are there any models where public agencies or public hospitals have set up their own registries uh, in order to compete with the greed of these for-profit entities? You know, I have heard of that. I don't. I can't give you any examples, but I know that that some hospitals, uh, either on their own or in hospital systems or in geographic areas, have come together to set up staffing agencies. Yeah, uh, Mark, I, I, I do know. I, I do know of one system in Texas that was a large system that spent a lot of money on on travelers and, and registry, and they actually did set up their own not only a same day registry, but um, longer term registry. They did it internally, but they had the economy of scale and, and enough openings that it, it, it warranted it, frankly. Yeah. I mean, if you could have a public agency, you could offer the nurses uh, the flexibility of the traveling, but also possibly being part of a uh, public pension system, which uh, might be very attractive. And maybe if there's some reciprocity between if they already worked uh, in a public pension environment uh, into the traveling nurse entity. Good thoughts. Matt, Mr. Chair, I apologize. You know, I always have something to say. <laughs> uh, I, I think wearing my quality hat, um, uh, the quality data teaches us that 70% of accidents happen with first-time teams flying together. So the, so the quality argument uh, is something which is sort of not necessarily measured. We're discussing this in finance committee, but I think that's an important discussion. The second point that I have is, I was actually just in one of our leadership uh, meetings, which was is being launched by the executive team. It was a nice meeting. There were nurses in the room and it was nice to, to spend a morning with them and they talked about how difficult it is to manage culture when half of your staff is here for a 13-week run. Mm -hmm. And that is also unmeasured as well. So, you know, this is an issue that I think every organization in, in this country is taking care of. And I'm glad that we're having discussion around it. Thank you. Uh, Trustee Blue. Yeah, I just want to echo what uh, Dr. Taff said, right? It's... Um... Now, I'm talking about 30-something years ago when I was an RN, but really dealing with registry nurses who aren't familiar uh, with the hospital, especially county hospitals, because we take care of the sickest people in the, in the county, and that's always been a challenge. And then the other thing is, under Title 22, the hospital is required to make sure that they orient 
traveling nurses, um, you know, to make sure that they're oriented to the unit and that somebody is keeping an, a close eye on them. Because in my experience, the care is not good, right? Because they don't have a commitment to the hospital, right? Uh, and I'm not saying all of it is not good, but we just have to be mindful of that. Absolutely. Any other comments? Okay, uh, thank you for all that discussion. I think it was very worthwhile. And we'll move on now to item D, action item. We have uh, five contracts uh, up for renewal uh, or extension. And does anybody want to uh, pull one of those contracts up for discussion? Okay, well, I would like to have some discussion on item D1, uh, the renewal of the agreement with the Alameda Health System Foundation. Uh, Mr. Jackson, would you like to present this item? Thank uh, you. Um, well, actually- I have some questions and I can, I can uh, talk about them if, if you'd like to, to kick it off, that's fine too. Preston Walton, who is the President of the foundation is present. I'd actually like to defer to Preston. He is much more versed in this. And so Preston, if you take a moment and, and present an overview for the trustees, that'd be great. Still on you mute, sir. Yes. Still on mute, sir. There you go. There you go. Still, I'll be, oh, thank you. I've called in and I'm on camera. Um, happy to provide an overview, James. Um, Trustee Fox, I'm happy and, and committee, happy to be here this evening. Uh, we're requesting a renewal of our contract for three years and extension uh, with an up to $15 million request um, with uh, tied to that a minimum goal of raising $30 million over this three years. Uh, I I think I introduced the, reintroduced the foundation to you all early this year, but I've been here for 16 months now. And last year really focused in the half year I was here in the fiscal year on really getting the team together short in. That year we raised about little over $2 million that we brought in. Uh, this being the final year of the, an extended contract, we're at $4 million or a little over $4 million raised to date. Um, and really have spent a lot of time leaning into the relaunch of the foundation, uh, re-engaging with the health system, re-engaging with our community, um, our partners and in community, including our county partners, and trying to, in the midst of a pandemic, really get a sense of the capability of philanthropy and supporting Alameda Health System's mission now and moving forward, um, and the team and resources it would take to do that. Um, one of the things that's been really helpful uh, is that at James's leadership as CEO, I've been invited to be part of the executive leadership team and really have gotten and continue to get to know all of our key executives within the health system and participate in the strategic planning process that we're wrapping up, which has really given myself and our team a good sense of really what's capable in the three years ahead um, and a sense of really the types of milestones we think are possible around capital, around support for programs, around really animating the strategic plan with philanthropy and really creating a name and a brand from a fundraising standpoint in Alameda County to garner support for the health system. Um, 
We'll pause there since Trustee Fox, I know you got some specific questions and I wanna make sure I give you time to defer there, but I'm happy to also provide a bit of a longer overview if necessary. Okay, well, well, I do have a few questions. Um, uh, thank you for that introduction, uh, Mr. Walton. And I, and I appreciate the foundation and the role that fundraising foundations have in county and non, in nonprofit hospitals. I, I, it just strikes me reading the information that was presented in the agenda package that uh, there doesn't, there seems to be, to me, to be a mismatch between the amount of uh, support that is requested in this proposal and the amount of, of money that's been raised by the foundation. Um, we're uh, over the past four years from 2018 to 2022, uh, the foundation has raised $12 million, um, which is $3 million a year. Uh, and this year, you just told us that we're going to raise $4 million or at approximately $4 million near the end of the year. Um, but we're, the, pro the, pro uh, the proposal that we're considering tonight is $15 million over the next three years or $5 million a year. And if you compare the $5 million a year that we're being asked to, uh, to approve compared to the $4 million that we are raising, uh, if that's our run rate, uh, that's not a very good ratio of cost to return from the foundation. Um, we haven't seen any financial statements. I don't think the, the committee hasn't. Uh, we haven't seen any financial statements, so we don't know what your expenses are right now. Um, we don't know how feasible it is that you'll raise uh, $10 million a year over the next three years. But it, to me, it seems like a bit of a stretch to be committing $15 million uh, uh, or $5 million a year when right now we're only raising $4 million. And, and my expectation would be more like that our cost of raising money would be maybe 25 to 50%, very broadly speaking. And here we're talking about committing a, a more than 100%. Um, so that, that gives me a problem in, in approving this proposal, unless I can see more information. Um, and I wonder if, if maybe it would be more appropriate either to, put, to, to table this until we have more information because we're not looking at uh, starting this commitment until July 1, so we do have next month's meeting, or to approve a, 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 a one-year allocation for the 2023 fiscal year, see how that goes before we commit uh, the, the out years on this proposal. Sure, may I respond, Trustee Fox? Please. Certainly. Um, to answer your question, yes, and, let me, and to reiterate, it's an up to request that we're making. One of the things that we are doing actively right now is building our budget for year one of this proposed um, proposal. And it is not my intention, particularly next year, that we would spend up to $5 million. We would spend $5 million, it would be less. Uh, right now, our budget is closer to $3.1 million that we're spending. But as we're looking at an expansion of largely staff and the resources to actually go ahead and raise particularly more major gifts in the community, we wanted to be able to have the ability as we're building out our plan to align with the strategic plan to actually expand accordingly. 
One of the key differences I would also say that is going into this contract versus the last. The last contract, you're correct, we raised $12 million over the course of the contract. A large portion of our last, our current contract included an EHR campaign, a capital camp, comprehensive campaign in support of the EHR envelope invitation that was under the leadership of a preceding team. That campaign was not successful um, for a number of reasons in achieving its full goal. Had it achieved its full goal, the contract would have been realized in closer to, um, at the very least, a two-to-one ratio before more likely closer to a three-one ratio. Part of what we're doing in the design of this coming fiscal year is building out in a way so that we do run closer to a, at the very least, two-to-one um, expense to fundraising ratio, and ideally, over the course of the three years, hit a three-to-one, if not higher, uh, fundraising ratio on our expenses. Uh, one of the other things that's changing moving forward is up to date in the contract and the way it's been ordered, unrestricted gifts um, that have come to the foundation have been used to offset the expenses of the foundation. Uh, so we have not taken the full draw uh, of the contracts previously, and that's the case in this current one we're in. Uh, there's about a million dollars, a little bit more in this current contract that we're not going to actually use uh, before the end of the contract. Moving forward in the next phase of contract, uh, those unrestricted gifts from donors would actually be invested directly back into the health system, um, likely hitting capital expenditure budget as a reinvestment. And so I, we anticipate that that alone would be about 500000 uh, to upwards to a million dollars a year coming back into the health system and reinvesting in capital expenditure program services to advance the mission of the health, the health system. Uh, I'm not quite sure I get that last point. Are you saying that we're going to recognize some unrestricted revenue that we've already- Yes, returning, yes. But, okay, but that's not new revenue that we're raising. It will be in the years subsequent to this fiscal year, new, new funds coming in that are unrestricted coming to the health system. Okay. Um, Trustee Fox. Yes, sir. Yeah. Having raised a bit of money and given away a lot of money and job running a foundation and my role as uh, chair, current chair of East Bay Communication, I have taken a look at a lot of nonprofits and what their fundraising costs are and researched on GuideStar and various other places. And I share your concerns. I uh, recognize there is a new management at the foundation and welcome uh, you, Mr. Walton, after a year and a half. Um, you know, you seem to have a very good approach, but I think this does require a deeper dive. And, um, you know, I personally would like to meet with you and go through some of this before voting or if, you know, a colleague or two want to join me in that process. I think we do need to, um, to have more information and more of a realistic projection of what our return on our investment is likely to be. Thank you, Tristan. Any other comments or, or questions? Trustee Blue. Yeah, I don't have any comments or questions, but I move to table this until uh, next month so we can have a time to look into this stuff deeper. Second. Uh, Okay, and I would just, in discussion on this, I would say that next month will be the meeting when we uh, review and 
approve the, 20, the fiscal 2023 budget. And I think what would be helpful would be to, to look at the 2023 budget uh, that ELT has approved for the foundation and, and, and look at how much uh, support would be needed in that budget uh, and, and what the uh, budgeted fundraising amount is and what that ratio is. Uh, and then we can, you know, at that point, I'd be more inclined probably to consider just approving the 2023 budget with whatever the support is in it, if it made sense to us. Uh, uh, but we could consider uh, further commitment if ELT wants to propose it. Mr. Chair, uh, uh, kind of uh, a statement and question to, to, the, to all the committee members. And to recall, I'm not a voting member on this committee. What would be the mechanism of, uh, to create the opportunity for uh, Mr. Walton to present the data set to make, to make sure that this, the ROI on this is favorable? Uh, uh, you know, this is, his, his budget's coming together. This is for July 1. Uh, I, I would say uh, this is, there, there's an urgency given that we're in May for this. I could call us, but we could call a special meeting on this to give him opportunity or, or uh, send trustees individually to him, which is sort of a lot of work for everybody. The committee members, do you have a recommendation to give Mr. Walton a, uh, an opportunity to present his good works? Uh, Trustee Blue? If we can have one special meeting, I'm for that, right? Because I'd hate for um, for Preston to meet individually with each of us. Yeah, yeah that could be particularly painful for him. It'll drive him crazy. <laughs> no, I don't. I I'm, think, ha I'm, I'm happy to meet with the trustees together independently, whichever works best for the group. Thank you. <laughs> well, it would drive me crazy if I yeah. had to meet with folks individually, but. I think, you know, one meeting, some special meeting. Yeah, I, I see a, a few alternatives, yes, uh, sir. Chair, Chair Bouquet. One would be, and I don't know if, it, if, it, if this would be feasible, if we can set aside some, meet, some time at the board meeting next week, uh, and if we could pull together information in time for that. And I don't know what your agenda is for next week. Yes, sir, that, board, board, board meeting for next week is pretty, Full okay. and sort of locked down, and I and I want to give Mr. Walton all. Okay. I, I I bet you Preston knows this stuff off the top of his head anyway. Okay, but the but second, I the second alternative is a is an extra meeting, which is fine. And the third would be to just build it into our June agenda. Okay, um, the June finance agenda or the, June, whole the June finance agenda. Got it. Okay. Um, how about you and I have that discussion? Uh, uh, June finance, you know, it could be agendized for that. All the finance committee can make these questions and discussions. The downside of that is uh, when it goes to full board, there may be further questions. But again, yeah. the finance committee is charged with stewarding these questions. And I would not have a problem with a special meeting if we can arrange it. Okay. Maybe let's say a one hour special meeting. Yes, sir. How about you and I and Mr. Walton and Mr. Jackson kind of come to some type of resolution on a way to give space? The foundation uh, has, has significant value to this organization. Right. And we I just want to say, I, I recognize that value. And I think all of the members of the committee recognize that value. And, and we're just trying to uh, be responsible in our, in our duty to uh, 
shepherd the resources of the organization. So I think we have a, a trustee blues motion on the floor that needs to be voted on. Madam Clerk. Did, it looks like Mr. Jackson and Mr. Walton both have their hands up. Do we wanna hear from them first or no? Sure, okay. Sure, uh, Mr. Walton, please. I believe um, James was first, but Trustee Fox, I just wanted to share. I appreciate the concern. I recognize the investment increase that's being asked of the committee. And so just wanted to make it clear that I'm perfectly happy and appreciate um, the discretion of the committee to be provided the opportunity to answer any questions and to provide a clear review regarding the investment. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Jackson. Thank you very much, Chair Fox. I, I appreciate the, the um, depth and the, the scrutiny that the trustees are applying to this, your comments, your questions are very appropriate. I reviewed this with Mr. Walton previously and frankly had some of the same concerns. There are some mitigating factors. There are some expenses that are um, rolled in here that were not um, in the foundation's purview previously. But these are things I think that can come out and will come out in the course of the conversations over the next month. And so I, I welcome the opportunity to be a part of those conversations. Okay, thank you. Any other comments or questions? I did just briefly. I do know that sort of rebuilding our muscle of the foundation is not a quick fix or doesn't take six months or a year. Um, if we were underperforming previously to get up to a robust, well-functioning foundation does require a commitment of some time. So I, I respect that. And uh, thank you. That's all. all right. Thank you. Any further comments or questions? Uh, may we have a roll call, please, Madam Clerk? Okay. The motion is to table the item to a date uncertain. Uh, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Um, uh, is there a motion on the remaining contract renewals and extensions, or uh, are there any that uh, a member of the committee wants to uh, pull off the agenda for discussion? I'd like to move the uh, remaining contracts in one motion. Okay, can we, can I hear a second? Okay, well, I'll second. 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 Okay. Thank you, Trustee Blue. Uh, can we have a roll call vote, please? Yes, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. The remaining contracts pass. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you very much uh, for that discussion. Uh, we are now at, at the end of the agenda, other than committee planning issues. Committee planning and issue tracking, and uh, I'll entertain any comments that anybody on the committee wants to make. All right, hearing none, uh, we will communicate back when our uh, special meeting uh, with the foundation is going to take place. And uh, see you then, we're adjourned.